You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3 as we do continue on in the Word of God in the book of Kings. Do you remember that this book chronicled, obviously, not just the uh, affairs of of good kings, but also bad kings. And one of the things that made the great difference, obviously, between good kings and bad kings was the presence of the Spirit of the Lord. That was the, uh, the, the primary thing. But the Spirit of the Lord giving them wisdom to govern well. And we see in Solomon a man who had been given wisdom. And we're going to see now as we read how Solomon exercised that wisdom in judging Israel. This was a, an example that spread far and wide throughout Uh, the land of his uh, showing his wisdom that impressed people and let them know that the Lord had truly given them a man who was after the heart of the Lord and had the right kind of godly wisdom to govern uh, in charge of them. So it was something that further established his kingdom. But before we turn our attention now to the word of the Lord, let's go to the Lord who gives this word and let's ask for his blessing. Sovereign Lord, we do ask now that you would be here present amongst us and that you would most particularly illuminate us inwardly. Lord, we confess that we could read the word all day long, but unless, O oh Lord, we have your light to, O oh Lord, take away the darkness, to take away the veil that lays over your word, then we won't understand it. Lord, we remember how the Pharisees poured over the scriptures in the original languages, Lord, And they day after day studied to show themselves approved, but yet because they did not see your son in them, they did not find the key to the scriptures. We pray that would not be the case with us. Help us to remember that Christ is present in every page of scripture. The salt is present in the sea. Oh, Lord, and let us taste and see that the Lord is good as we go through this section of Scripture. Wake us up today. We know that the, the devil is always eager to snatch away the seed as it's falling. Don't let him do that, Lord. Hedge us in and keep us alert. Keep us focused on the word. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. First Kings chapter 3. And I'm going to be starting with verse 16. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house. And I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth. And we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, no, but the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, no, but the dead one is your son and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. And the king said, The one says, this is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, but your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, Let him be neither in mine nor yours, but divide him. 
So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We saw in an earlier part of chapter 3, as we read that last week, how God had asked Solomon what he wanted. Ask of me what you wish. And he was going to grant it to him. And Solomon wisely asked for wisdom. Specifically, Solomon had said in verse 8, And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Solomon knew that circumstances were going to arise where he would have to show great discernment, where he would have to be able to pick the right course when it didn't seem clear. He was going to be presented with certainly things that would be trivial and easy to solve, perhaps, but many of the things that came before him as both a king and a counselor for his people, they were going to be difficult to understand. So he asked for what he needed, wisdom, in order to discern aright. And now we see an example of Solomon doing exactly what he had hoped he would be able to do, to judge correctly, to judge wisely, judging a difficult case that was brought to him. Now it's interesting, isn't it? At least it's interesting to me. I hope it's interesting to you too, that uh, we aren't given an issue of state as an example. I'm sure there were many thorny uh, issues to deal with, with the states surrounding Israel, but it, it's not, you know, something dealing with the Hittites or the, you know, the, uh, the inhabitants of Samaria, the Syrians, the Assyrians, or anything like that. Nothing of foreign policy. Rather, it is something that's actually kind of trivial when you think of what a king would be doing. He had to decide a matter of whose child a particular baby was. Uh, in, in fact, the case is that in most kingdoms, uh, this kind of case would never have made it to the king because the people involved had so little status. They had nothing that would uh, allow them to put forward a, a case uh, by privilege, by birthright, or because of important people that they knew. And so it shows how the people of God were being blessed by the very fact that they had a king who listened to their problems. But they had a king who listened to their problems because God had told the kings to listen to the problems of the people and to judge rightly according to his law. That was a great blessing too. They were still at this uh, point a nation of laws. That's something important to remember. We're going to see how as Israel began, they were a nation that was constrained by the law of God. And so they were zealous to make sure that it applied to all people. But gradually as corruption spreads and as bad kings came in, they became a nation of men. Uh, I fear, unfortunately, that that is something that's happening within our nation as well. Law is sinking very, very low, and the influence of particular men and opinions is rising very high. Uh, that is never a good sign. But at this point in time, we see this is a nation of laws. Solomon himself is constrained by law. Now, in this case, in this particular case that he was judging, we have two prostitutes, both of whom are claiming that a newborn baby boy is theirs. Now, in our own time, we might say, well, this is simple to figure out. We'll just you know, give him a DNA test, or we'll compare his, his 
uh, footprint to the footprint that was on his card from the hospital and so on. But you've got to remember that at this point there is no DNA testing. There are no footprint cards. There's nothing like that. There isn't even a witness available from the house who could say, yes, that was her son, not his. There is no one except these two in the house who could determine whether or not the child was in fact one woman or another, uh, one woman's or another's. So uh, it's, a, it's a, a difficult issue to address. Why is it so important though, if the child has a mother, why is it so important that, that this mother be allowed to raise her own child other than obviously every mother wants to be able to raise her own child? Well, figuring out why this child uh, or whose mother uh, who the mother of this child, I should say, was, is important because of the social situation. Uh, imagine, if you will, that you are at the very bottom of the social ladder. I know some of you are probably thinking to yourself, well, that's not that hard to imagine. Uh, I'm pretty close already, a few steps down. Well, no, actually, you're, you're much higher up the ladder than you probably think. Uh, in this case, though, the two women involved were below even the status of lepers and beggars because they were prostitutes. Even some slaves ranked higher than they did. Imagine their situation. They have a job. Imagine you're them. You have a job, but you hate your job, and everyone looks down on you because of your job. Women, particularly married women, absolutely despise you. You are a constant source of consternation to them. Somebody they are constantly worried that their husband is looking at. They hiss at you in the street. Your relatives, even if you have any who are alive, have disowned you. Unlike even the beggars, you aren't allowed at the temple. What are you? You're just, in the eyes of most people, you're a whore. You're a common prostitute. And you only make enough money to put a little food on the table, and the rest goes to paying the owner of the house you live and work in. You have no savings. You have no social security. You have no retirement plan. You have nothing at all to fall back on. You, you don't have a husband who is going to labor to, to uh, help you to live. And every day your job gets harder because you are becoming less desirable as you age. Eventually, if things continue on as they have been, you will get to a point where all you can do is beg. What a terrible, terrible future that would be. So each day you worry more and more about what will become of you. But then God gives you a blessing. You find you're pregnant. And while that is going to interrupt your, your work for a little while, if it's a boy, you have hope at least for the future. He can get a job as a laborer, perhaps even become an apprentice. But regardless, your son can work and take care of you when you are old. But if that child, that son who you were placing all your hopes in, if he were to suddenly die, your hopes would probably die with him. To be a widow with no husband and no son to support them was a, was a terrible state, even for people who were of a higher economic status, a higher rank in society. You remember from the book of Ruth how devastated Naomi was when not just her husband died, but then her sons died. 
and there was no one who was going to be able to take care of her. She thought it was all over. She instructed people not to call her Ruth any longer, I mean Naomi any longer rather, but rather to call her Mara, meaning bitterness. For the Lord had made her life, she said, very bitter. Well, that's uh, what's going on here. We have a, a woman who, who had hope, but who now seems to have had that hope taken away. And not because her son had died, but because her son was stolen. So she seeks justice. She takes it all the way up to the king's court. Now, her story, when it's presented before the king, and the way that it's written down here, it, it, it sounds most plausible. You're meant to read it and say, yes, yes, that's probably what happened. But you have to remember, how is the judge going to know whether that happened or not? How will Solomon figure it out? He essentially has the situation of two children pulling back and forth at the car in the morning saying, I had it first. No, I had it first. How is he going to decide who had it first? What's he going to do? Well, what Solomon does is, is actually it's genius. It was very common at this point in time in cases of contested inheritance when it couldn't be established who the land definitely should go to that the judge would simply split the inheritance in half. So Solomon determines he's going to split the inheritance in half. He calls for a sword. We'll cut the baby in two. You can each have half. Now, it's a wonderful solution if it wasn't fatal to the child, obviously, and both of them would have one half of a dead baby, which wouldn't do them any good. Now, Solomon didn't actually, obviously, intend to cut the baby in half, but he was a king who had already uh, gotten rid of several of the people who had threatened his kingdom, so the use of the sword would have been something that intimidated people, that made them pale. So when they heard the, the sword of Beniah coming out of this, the sheath with the snicker snick, they probably would have all gone very pale and said, is the king really going to do this? It's not beyond possibility that he would. But Solomon knew that human nature being what it was, the actual mother would probably not allow that to happen. She would rather suffer the loss of the child than to allow her own child to be killed. So he expected what happened to happen, which was that she cried out, do not kill the child. The other woman, meanwhile, whose baby had been smothered, and unfortunately, this was, a very, this was very commonplace at this point in time. There were no, no cradles or bassinets as a general rule. You slept with your child in the same bed, and it was sometimes the case that a mother would accidentally turn over in the night and, <coughs> and roll on top of her child, and the baby would die. And that's what happened. But she was very bitter about that, and she would rather see both of them bereaved rather than to have to watch this other woman raise her son when she did not have one of her own. She would be watching a woman who would have hope for the future while each day her hope got dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And she was not willing to do that. There's an old saying, misery loves company. And unfortunately that comes from the father of misery because that's the devil. He's not just the father of lies, he's the father of misery. He's the one who brought it in and he wants everybody to be miserable with him. When we want others to be miserable because we're miserable, and unfortunately that's something that animates the human heart once in a while, 
we are following after the example of the devil. He knows his time is short and he wants to drag as many people down with him. When we desire other people to be sad and wretched because we're sad and wretched, we're following in his footsteps. Obviously, that should not be something that we want. It should not be the case that we, when somebody has something good, spend all of our time envying them, saying, they don't deserve that thing, give it to me, or if I can't have it, they shouldn't have it either, no one should. That's a spirit of envy, a spirit of bitterness. Rather, we should be pleased when others succeed, when they're put forward. It should bring joy to our hearts when somebody is, is enjoying some blessing, some boon. It should be our desire to congratulate them, but that's not what's animating her heart. She is full of misery, and if she can't have this baby, no one can. And so she cries out, let him be put to death as well. Well, Solomon at that point knows absolutely whose child it is. It's the, it's the child of the mother who loves his life. Now, interestingly, as I was preparing for this, I, I read, uh, I, I always read from Matthew Henry to get his take on something uh, before I go up in the pulpit. I know that I'm usually on very shaky ground if I'm, I'm at odds with uh, Matthew Henry, but here I think he says something um, where you can honestly say, oh, oh, Matthew, um, you ain't seen nothing yet uh, if you're writing this way about your own time. Matthew Henry comments, and keep in mind he's writing in the 1700s, so uh, almost 300 years ago. Actually, at this point, almost exactly 300 years ago. How much better it was in those times with children born in fornication than commonly it is now. Harlots then loved their children, nursed them, and were loath to part with them, whereas now they are often sent to a distance, abandoned or killed, that thus is was foretold that in the last days perilous times should come when people should be without natural affection. Second Timothy 3, 1 through 3. Well, if Matthew Henry thought there was a lack of natural affection towards children because they were abandoned in his time frequently, what would he say about our time? When so many of them are deliberately killed, when somebody make a decision, I will not put this child up for adoption, I would rather see them dead. One of the things that was heartbreaking to me, my, my wife worked for, uh, I'm sorry, I did not tell her she was going to be an example from the pulpit. I normally, I say, brace yourself if you're going to be. Uh, so here it comes, hon, I'm so sorry. For um, <clears throat> several years, she worked uh, at the Crisis Hill, at the Crisis Hill, at the Capitol Hill, it should be Crisis Hill at this point, Capitol Hill Crisis Pregnancy Center. Um, and there she counseled women. And one of the things that uh, I know broke her heart, and when it was related to me, broke mine as well, was often she would talk to women, and she would you know, show them models, show them ultrasound pictures, and so on, and say, now you know this is a baby, this is a living human being. And sometimes the woman would actually nod and say, yeah, I know it's a baby. And then she would say, well, you can give this baby up for adoption. There are people who would be very happy to raise this child who, who desperately want a child of their own. There are more families seeking babies for adoption than there are babies in the adoption pipeline. And they would raise that child up in a loving family. Oh, no. Oh, no, I'm not giving my child up for adoption. No way, no how. I am not going to allow my child to be taken by somebody else. So they would rather have the child killed than give it away to someone else. That, that truly is a hardened heart. But that's the kind of heart we're born into this world with, without Christ. But back to our story here, Solomon had solved the problem. He determined who the, the true woman is. 
uh, the true mother rather is amongst the two women and all Israel is amazed. They're amazed that God has given him so much wisdom that he was able to, to figure out the way to get through this, this particular uh, Gordian knot. Well, what, what's the, and happily, uh, Alexander, obviously, in the story of the Gordian knot, Alexander the Great was told there was this knot that uh, the man who untied it would be the ruler of Asia, and so he spent a few moments attempting to untie it, got frustrated, and cut it in two. I think that was cheating, I gotta tell you, but everybody else was like, well, great, he's the ruler of all Asia. Uh, yes, I am, said Alexander, and so on. Well, Solomon had used actual wisdom to uh, untie this particular knot, uh, and we need to ask ourselves, what's the application of this to us? Um, there are, and it, it's amazing, looking at this particular uh, topic, I have seen some, some wild applications uh, here. Um, one of the ones that I've seen only a few times uh, is be like this mom. I, that's not the correct application, although true story, I was having a discussion with a group of pastors um, and we got around to um, the discussion of our, our biggest mistakes that we had ever made while preaching. I won't tell you what mine was, but I'll tell you what somebody else's was. One <laughs> uh, of uh, me telling you would be the biggest, the second biggest mistake I ever made. No, uh, one of the pastors said uh, that he was a new pastor at a Baptist church and he had actually chosen to preach on these verses for Mother's Day, believe it or not. He said all he'd been thinking of was here was a mother who was willing to make the, the great sacrifice for her son, not realizing that he was in the minds of the mothers comparing them to harlots. And uh, his wife came up to him with a very, very worried expression at the end of the sermon. Saying, um, honey, uh, those weren't Proverbs 31 moms you were comparing them to. So um, apparently the, uh, the nice Baptist ladies did not appreciate the comparison. But uh, in any event, he uh, learned that the hard way. Uh, now there is a sense though in which, yes, it is right and good. God has built us rightly to be willing to do almost anything for our children. Now we should be willing to do to make any sacrifice for our children uh, other than sin. We should never sin against our God for our kids. But uh, Phil Riken does make the, uh, the, the good point. He says, the first mother, this is your Sabbath meditation actually, made the kind of loving sacrifice that some women make when they put a child up for adoption. Unable to care for children very well themselves, they are willing to suffer the loss of a son or daughter to give the child a better chance in life. Good fathers and mothers make similar sacrifices every day. Instead of doing what they want for themselves, they do what is best for their children. So if we want a very shallow application, we could do worse than saying do what is best for your children. Um, that, is, that is true. We could also look at this and we should say, we could say, we should be willing like Solomon was to grant justice to anybody simply because they were created in the image of God rather than based upon their social status. Unfortunately, I have seen this, these verses as a leaping off point for all sorts of social justice warrior sermons, uh, which I am not going to labor uh, or make you roll your eyes at uh, this morning, and I don't think that's the correct application either. Now we can see here the importance also of having God-given just uh, wisdom in judging rightly. But uh, I, I think, actually, there's, there's a deeper, more disturbing application uh, for us here. 
Um, and it doesn't have to do with cutting babies in half or anything like that. It's actually this. Here we see an application of justice. We see two women, they come, they're same social status, they come before the king and he judges their, their case and he makes a definitive declaration as to who is guilty and who is innocent in this particular case. Now, when we read stories like this, it's just like the parables. When you read about, for instance, the publican and the Pharisee, we immediately associate ourselves not with the tax collector, I mean, sorry, not with the Pharisee, rather, because the Pharisee is the worst thing in our eyes that you could be. We associate ourselves immediately with the tax collector. Or when we read this, I think it's our tendency, isn't it? Who do we see ourselves as in this? I mean, hopefully no, nobody's thinking, well, I'm Solomon in this, you know, the, the wisest man in the land. But I think most people, if they're asked to put themselves in the scenario, they would associate themselves with the aggrieved mother, the mother whose child was stolen. We say, that's me. But I need to ask you, have you never sinned? Have you never lied? Have you never cheated? It's funny, as I was preparing for this, I recalled something from my early childhood. It's, uh, it's something despicable. It's not something I, I'm proud of in any sense. They, they had... Um, uh, and uh, they still do it occasionally. There were these things back when I was a kid called uh, books. Um, they, they looked like this. Uh, they didn't have on-off buttons. You turned them, you read, and there was a story inside. And you amused yourself that way. <clears throat> and um, I used to look forward to, they had a book fair uh, every year. Well, one year, uh, I was in sixth grade. Uh, the book fair was coming up. And um, I either didn't tell my mother or we didn't have enough money to give me for the, the book fair or something, but uh, the book fair rolled around and, and there were all my friends buying books. And uh, I didn't have any money for books. It was, um, it was the case that you, you wrote the book you wanted down, there was the price, and you were supposed to pay for it that day. It wasn't bringing the money later on. Well, they, uh, the movie Midway, and this dates me, not the modern movie Midway, the old movie Midway had come out uh, fairly recently. I loved World War II, I loved airplanes, and it was this Midway book, paperback written for kids, and I desperately wanted that book. And one of my uh, friends had enough money, so he bought the book. And I said, can I see the book? And he held it up and he said, there, you can see it. Put it down, did that thing that kids do. This, of course, brought rage into my heart. <laughs> so I waited until uh, the lunch break when uh, he went to get his, his, uh, his brown paper sack out of his cubby, and I grabbed the book off his desk. And I didn't just grab the book off his desk. I, I scribbled out his name in pen, and I wrote my name underneath it. Now it was my book. Well, he was desperately unhappy to find that his book had disappeared. He was even crying. I didn't care. I, I wanted that book. And uh, eventually he saw that the book was in my desk. And so he went to the teacher, he stole my book. And um, I was like, oh, don't be such a big baby, it's my book. My name's in it. And apparently somehow this teacher with Salmonic wisdom was able to figure out it was his book. You know, the <laughs> scratched out name at the top might have been the giveaway. But uh, I remember being terribly bitter and all I could think in my heart was, it's not fair. I deserve that book. I'm more World War II oriented. I love planes more than he does. It's not fair. All day long, you know, 
I can't remember how I was punished. That wasn't fair either. I deserved that. Did I deserve that book? No, obviously not. I was a thief. I was a liar and a thief. I deserved judgment. I deserved punishment. But did I think that in my heart? No, I had all sorts of excuses for why what I did was right. But were I to stand before God at that moment, would any of those excuses have counted at all? No, he would have condemned me rightly as a, as a liar and as a thief because that's what I was. Brothers and sisters, we don't understand this. We don't feel it in our hearts. All of us are full of excuses for our terrible behavior. We are quick to condemn others. We see so clearly what terrible things they have done. But we have legions of excuses. It's not just our kids. Us as well for the things that we do. The reasons why we're allowed to cheat. We're allowed to claim more than we're actually entitled to. That kind of thing. Or worse. While, why we're allowed to get angry. Why we're allowed to drink too much. While we're allowed to watch something we know we really shouldn't. Why we're allowed to have that relationship we should not be having. And so on. We can come up with a thousand excuses, and all of them are false. And one day, I have to tell you, we will stand before a God who is greater than Solomon, a judge who is wiser than Solomon, and he will see through all of our excuses, every single one, and he'll know the truth about us. He'll know exactly who we are and what sins we have committed. And on that day, we have no expectation whatsoever that we will be found innocent. Brothers and sisters, all of us on that day will be found guilty unless we have one who stands with us, more than just a lawyer, not somebody to talk us out of that particular situation, to use intriguing arguments to, to get us off the hook, to claim insanity on our behalf. No. In that moment, what we'll need is somebody who is willing to take our punishment in our stead. And as Elder Brunson has already told us, there is only one mediator between man and God, only one person who was able to do that, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Happily, that is what he has done for all who are his. He laid down his life as an atonement for all of those sins, including sins ranging from things like when I stole that book from my friend to the times that I plotted murder in my heart and so on. There is only one mediator between man and God, only one way of salvation, only one name under heaven by which men should be saved. And we know that the day is coming when we will be judged. And if we are not ready for that day, remember, it's given once to live and then the judgment. And on that day, if we do not have Jesus as our advocate, we will have no hope. Less hope than the aggrieved mother in this particular circumstance. And so I would beg you, if you have not yet already done it, give up your own defense. You're a terrible lawyer. You will never be able to defend yourself before God. You may have plausible excuses for your spouse, for your employer, for your mother perhaps, although usually she'll see through you but you have no plausible excuses to lay before a God who knows all. Before that day, 
Make sure you have come to Christ. Make sure you have laid down all of your excuses and run from them to the only one who is willing to take you as not just his client, but as his to ransom you, to pay for you, and to do so at the very cost of his own life. That's what Christ has done for his children. And so when he comes in his glory, if you are his, you'll be ready. You'll hear those words that you long to hear. Well done, O good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But if you have not done that, then nothing remains to you except weeping and outer darkness and an eternity of torment as we pay for the sins that we have sinned against a holy God. I pray that none of you will be looking forward to outer darkness, but instead you will be looking forward to eternal life and eternal light in the presence of the Son. That is a sobering reflection, admittedly, but the judgment of Solomon is a type It's a type that points to the the wisdom of God and the final judgment that's to come. Be ready for that judgment. Be prepared to stand before the one who will judge you wisely and fairly. I pray that you'll be acquitted for the sake of Christ. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, I pray, Lord, that no one here would be thinking that they have anything that they can offer in their hand to justify them in your sight. I pray that if they are still holding on to something that... As we come to the Lord's Supper, the very fact that these things represent the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, which was the only payment, the only ransom for sin, would persuade them to give up trying to save themselves, trying to make excuses, trying to say to themselves, I'm a good person, when in fact we know ourselves, Lord. We are not good people. If we would only be honest with ourselves, we know that deep down within our hearts we were born with hearts of stone, and that only because of what Christ has done is that heart taken away and a heart of flesh, a heart that is sensitive and willing to admit, to humble ourselves before you, willing to admit our sinfulness, willing to admit the fact that we didn't deserve your salvation. I pray, Lord, that you would give that kind of heart to everybody who's hearing me today. And I pray, Lord, that when the day comes, they will all be prepared to stand before you. 